Continuing today with our study of the writings of John, as a recap, just to kind of quickly go back over some of the things we've looked at, John is accredited with writing the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also the book of Revelation. The letters of John that we've been studying for the last several weeks, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, focus more on the some of the difficulties within the Christian community. His gospel that he wrote focused more on bringing people to Christ, to faith in Christ, as well as he spent some time criticizing the, the Jewish religious leaders of that day. One of the themes of 1st John is an attempt to correct some of the false beliefs about Christ that were being taught by some false teachers. As his first letter did, in the second and third letters, John provides us with a a little bit better look at the early church, some of its problems, and some of the doctrine that was developing within the church that was propagated by false teachers. It seemed that the recipient of the second letter, while it dealt with some of the same issues as the first letter, was more of a personal letter to a Christian woman and her family. In fact, if we look at Second John verses 1 and 2, the elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. There are some that think that the references here are not literal, but are rather used figuratively, and actually does not refer to a an actual woman, but rather a church and its members. Um, it, it really doesn't matter which way you look at it, because it's the subject of the letter that makes it pertinent to the the church then and to us today. So let us read. Start with reading our text, Second John, verses four through nine. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Today, as we look at this second letter of of John, I want to go with the line of thinking that the letter was actually addressing a particular lady, particular lady and her family. And again, keep in mind that, that it is the subject and the implications of the text are the same, regardless if it was written figuratively or whether it was written to be taken metaphorically. It's the subject matter that really matters. The first thing that we read is John was rejoicing when he heard that some of his Christian friends were remaining obedient to God's word. 
That was in verse 4. God commended the women's children, as he called them, for obeying the truth. The reference here to the truth is the commandments of God is recorded in his word. Truth has gotten, the word truth in, in a lot of religions has gotten off base from what it was originally meant to be. When John spoke of the truth, he meant the word of God the teachings of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people today that when they speak of the truth, they're speaking more of a person's personal opinions on a lot of things that they've called truth. The only real truth is what we find here. Anything outside of this is an opinion. So we have to be careful when we speak of the truth what we are speaking of. And John was speaking specifically of the teachings of Jesus Christ. John committed the women's children for obeying this truth. John made a, it was interesting how he, how he said it. His commendation to them was because these people had made living in the truth of God's word a consistent part of their life. It wasn't just that they knew what the truth was. It wasn't that they had heard the truth. It's that they were walking in it. They were living the life. And we today are the same way. It's not enough that we hear the word. It's not enough that we know the word. It's that we walk in it. It's not enough that we know how Jesus lived his life and we know the ways of Christ. It's that we follow in those ways. And John, what made him so happy here is it wasn't just that these people had heard what he said and they had gone around and told other people what he said, but he hears that they're actually living it. And that's what it's supposed to be. That's what Christians are supposed to do. Not just know the Word, but to live the Word. And it's, it's interesting. We've talked before about the, the peculiarities of John's writing. He writes here about loving one another. And the way that he says it is, this is nothing new. And if you remember back earlier in John's first letter... When he spoke of loving one another, he said the exact same thing. This is nothing new. You've heard this from the beginning. And what he was saying was, all the way back to when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, all the way back to then, you heard of it, love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is nothing new to you. But then after the early church was formed, there was even more and more taught about love. And so John is saying... I'm, I'm telling you, you need to love one another. And this is not something new. This is something we've heard from the beginning. And then he repeats it. I ask that we love one another. John was real big on repeating the same statement just to make sure that it got across. And when you go back, after we finish this study, go back and read First, Second, and 3 John and just look how many times he emphasizes certain things by just saying it over and over and over. Sure. Repetition. If I say it enough times, they'll get it. It's kind of what he was saying. It's interesting to point out that John framed his comments on loving one another within the context of obeying God. And what I mean by that is the idea of loving our brothers cannot be separated from heeding the teachings of Jesus. 
We cannot say that we're following in the teachings of Jesus and not love our brother. John is the one that stressed in the first letter that we can't say we love God and not love our brother. Remember we talked about it, you can't have one without the other? You have to love your brother if you say you love God. And in the last part of the last part of verse 6, John makes a statement that the commandment is not just to say we love, but that we walk in love. That's what he was so happy about, is that they were walking in love, but he says it again, that the command is that we walk in it. Not that we know what love is, not that we have love in our heart, not that we love those that love us, but that we walk in the love of Christ. We live our life and we love the way that Christ loved. How did Jesus love when he was on this earth? Unconditionally. It didn't matter if people liked him. He loved them anyway. It didn't matter if people liked him. He died for them anyway. And that's what we are called to do. You say, well, I don't know if I'm up to that. On our own, I think we are. On our own, I don't think we can do that. But with the Spirit of God in our life leading and guiding us, I believe that we can walk in that kind of love. In verse 7, John gets to the, the heart of this letter. And he starts to speak about some of the false teachers that were threatening the church. And what was happening was that these false teachers had actually set up an itinerant ministry and they were going from church to church of the churches that John oversaw. John had established these churches and he was this overseer over several churches and he, he went back from time to time and he would teach and, and, and lift people up and, and keep the things going in the church. And these guys were going behind him teaching this false doctrine. And so he was writing this particular letter to a lady and her family to warn them about that. And what was happening is these false teachers were seeking to make converts of the churches that John, of the people in the churches that John had established, and they were taking advantage of the Christian hospitality of some of these people. These people were saying, well, you know, we're Christians, so we need to take these people in and we need to help them and we need to support them. And John's saying, no, you don't have to help them and support them. You have to love them, but you don't have to help and support them for their false things that they're teachings. Because what they're, what they're doing is undermining what I've been trying to do. They're tearing down all the things that we have established. And so, no, I, I'm saying you, you love them, but you don't have to support them. You don't have to invite them into your house. You don't have to give them your money. You know where I'm going with that, but we'll get there in just a minute. It shows a little bit in this writing that where the church was, it was in a transition state in the early church. There was a lot of things going on. There was a lot of false doctrine that was being taught. Why? Because people didn't have a lot of resources to go back to. They didn't have the words that we have. They couldn't go online and and look up all the references and, and have all these Bible encyclopedias and all that. They had the teachings of somebody that would come along like John and say, this is the truth. And then they would, in turn, tell someone else. And that's really as far back as it went for them. 
That's all they had was what John told them. But if somebody else came along and said, yeah, that's true, but... And so there was a lot of deception going on in the early church. It was start, there was starting to be more persecution in this time. And John was in a place to where he knew that in order for this church to take root and be grounded, that it had to be grounded in truth. Amen. For us to take root and be grounded in a Christian walk, it has to be grounded in truth. And when I say truth, again, I go back, it has to be grounded in the Word of God. It can't be built on on somebody's philosophies and, and somebody's opinions. It has to be grounded in the Word of God. The most important heresy that John was addressing in verse 7 was, again, and it's something he had addressed before, there was false teaching going out that Jesus Christ did not have a real human body. It was a common thing that was being taught. And just to, to go over that point again, I want to, before we get into it anymore, explain why that is so important. If Jesus didn't have a real human body, then he really didn't experience life as we do. Let's see what the, some other scriptures say about the humanity of Jesus. Paul understood that. He wrote in Hebrews, in fact, Hebrews 2 and 18. This is speaking of Jesus. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus was flesh body enough, fleshly body enough that we see that he was tempted. (coughs) Hebrews 4 and 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And again, Paul is speaking to the humanity of Jesus Christ. He's saying that that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was tempted in every way that we were. He went through all of the same emotions that we went through, yet he was without sin. And to take away the humanity of it takes away the the what it really means overall. If Jesus, and follow me with this, if Jesus didn't have a human body, then his sacrifice was not an acceptable payment for our sin. Let me say that again. If Jesus didn't have a human body, then his sacrifice was not an acceptable payment for our sin. You see, man had caused the initial separation with God. When Adam sinned in the garden, that was the initial separation between God and man. And only the sacrifice of a man could be payment enough to bring us back to God. We There was a choice. Either all of us had to die ourselves, or someone had to die for us in our place for our sin. Because that's what we were promised was death when Adam was pushed out of the garden. But it wasn't just any man. This Jesus Christ person was the Son of God. And people were denying... They were saying it was just a spirit thing. It was just a deity that came down. But by doing that, they took away from the human side that was required for there to be a sacrifice for sin. And John said that anyone that denied the humanity of Christ was the Antichrist. I mean, he just got right to the point. Now, he didn't mean that every individual that denied the humanity of Jesus was to be identified as the Antichrist like we speak of in the book of Revelation. 
Rather, he was metaphorically comparing these frauds to Satan or the great deceiver. In fact, John himself, the very writer of these letters, had heard Jesus speak some words, and he wrote them down in chapter 8, verse 44 of, of the Gospel of John. This is Jesus speaking to some people. He said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, John had heard Jesus say those words. And so he is kind of metaphorically using that, and he says those people that are going around teaching false teachings, they're deceivers, and they are the Antichrist. Or they are followers of Satan. Why? Because he heard Jesus say that Satan was the father of all lies. And so he just put them in a category where they belong. John cautioned, and this is where he gets into the part not to fellowship or to support those that spread false teachings about the Messiah back in his letter. By aiding false teachers, they were helping those that sought out to undermine the ministry and the pastoral efforts of their churches. It's like if if the the, the people of High Point Church or the people of any church... They decide, well, you know, I'll give a little bit to my church where I go, but I'm going to also give to to this person out here that I don't really know anything about. I don't really know what they're doing. I don't really know what they teach. I don't know if they're teaching things that are just absolute heresy, but I like the way they talk. So I'll just send them some money. And this is kind of what John was looking at. He said, don't associate with those people. Don't support that. He also pointed that pointed out that they risked not receiving their full eternal reward. I think that's in verse 8. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. That if we if we follow after those that deceive us, we can lose our reward. And John didn't, he pointed out that these false teachers were not just violating what he said. And this is the important thing. In the next verse, he says, it's not that they're going around saying that I told things that weren't true. They're going against the very things that Jesus taught about himself. You know, it'd be one thing if if these men were following behind John and saying, you know, what he's saying is not exactly true. But John's saying they are going against the very teachings of Jesus Christ. You can't do that. Basically, they were calling Jesus Christ a liar because Jesus said that that he came as a man and they're now denying his humanity. He goes on to say that anyone that deliberately wandered away from the truth does not have God. It's a pretty strong statement. On the other hand, he said that if they continued in the doctrine of Christ, they have both the Father and the Son. In other words, if you continue in the truth, God truly lives in you and he fellowships with you. Let's skip to 3 John, verses 3 through 11. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. 
I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth, much the same way he started the second letter. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We sought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. This is a bad guy. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does not, who, anyone who does what is evil is not, has not seen God. John's third letter is to a particular person. It was a man named Gaius. He was what John referred to in verse 1, a dear friend. It doesn't say if, if this man named Gaius was a, um, a pastor of a church, a member of a church, a leader over several churches, but he was somewhere in that original church that John had helped establish. And he was writing this letter to him to point out some of the same things that he had written to this lady in Second John. Apparently this man had the resources to show hospitality to many of the itinerant preachers that came through. And some of them had gone through there, and they had come back to John and said, man, when we, were, when we were in that town, he treated us great. It was wonderful. And John is writing this letter to him to commend him for doing that. These were the ones that were teaching the truth. But then he separates it. He said that nothing gave him better joy than to see that those people were continuing in the truth. It made him glad to see that the things he had taught were still being followed. And he encouraged this man to continue to do those things and show hospitality to the traveling missionaries that were teaching the truth, specifically. One of those men's, men that he mentioned in verse 12 was a man named Demetrius. He mentioned him by name. He said that he's a good guy. He's spoken well of by everybody. And when he came through, he said that you took really good care of him. That's fantastic. But look what he said about him. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. He's spoken well of everybody, and even by the truth itself. He was teaching the truth. John was emphasizing again that we are to support those that are teaching the truth. Now, he contrasts that with another man, and we'll get to him in just a second. But John, in verse 5, John commends Gaius because he says, even though these men were strangers, you still took them in, and you befriended them, and you helped them. And let me say this. When we have somebody come to High Point Church that maybe is a missionary or is establishing a church somewhere and our pastor feels led to, to receive an offering for this person, 
it's okay to give to that person. If our pastor says that it's okay, that means he has enough confidence in what they're doing that it's okay to do it. If he didn't have enough confidence in them, I don't think he would have them in this pulpit in the first place. So you can give, if somebody stands up here that has the okay of our pastor, it's okay to give toward their ministry. Any of the missionaries that you see pictures of in the back hallway back there, it's okay if you give to their ministries. Why? Because we know them. We know what they teach. We know what they believe. We know what they stand for. And they stand for the truth. And that's all that John was trying to get across to these these people he's writing these individual letters to is there's good people and there's bad people. Continue to support the good people, but don't continue to support the bad people because they're undermining what we're trying to do. Sure, absolutely. John urged... Gaius to dispatch these men or take care of these people. And I like the way he said it. He said, in a manner that is befitting to a servant of God. That's pretty good. I want you to take care of these people in a manner that was befitting to a servant of God. Now, if they're not teaching the truth, then what? They're not a servant of God. So you can dispatch them too, just in a different way. Right on down the road. John explains why it's important to help these men that were going around teaching the truth. He said, when these men set out, they didn't accept anything from the unbelievers, or as John called them, the pagans. He says they went out for, the, for his namesake. They said, we're going to go out and teach the name of Jesus Christ and teach about salvation and the gospel of Christ, but no, we're not going to take any money from these pagans. We're going to go out and we're going to depend on those from the, the churches. Okay. And he's saying because of that, you have an obligation to help these people. Because of that, you have an obligation to show hospitality so that we can work together in the truth. It's, it's going back to missionaries, someone that comes here that's a missionary and we take up an offering to give to them for a particular project maybe, we are working together with them for the truth. These are people that have chosen to go someplace that you and I probably don't want to go. They have chosen to go someplace and spend their life where we don't want to go. I look at brother and sister Edwards that are in Taiwan They have been there for 27 years, I think. Their kids grew up there. Their kids became adults in a foreign country. They gave everything up to go to a foreign country with people they didn't know, didn't know the language, didn't know the culture, and gave it all up to go. I don't have a bit of problem giving them support because I don't want to go. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm saying I don't want to. I would much rather stay here and talk to you guys and give to support them to continue doing what they're doing. But on the other side, somebody has to go. 
Amen. Lord, send them. <laughs> but what, what John was saying here, and what, the reason I said that, is that when we do that, we are working with them. Every person that is saved through the ministry of the missionaries, if we have helped to support those that are teaching the truth, we have worked with them. We have helped them. We have helped that person come to the truth. Why? Because without support of people here in the States, most of those missionaries can't stay where they are. And then we come to this other man that John mentions. Diatrophies. In verse 9, John's words were less than flattering when he spoke of him. He says that, I sent a letter to him telling him of the importance of showing kindness to the missionaries that come around. But um, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. And the problem was that he didn't want to recognize John's authority. And John wrote, because he loves to be first. Now let's put this into perspective and into context. Here's the man that he didn't want to have authority under John one of the 12 a personal friend of Jesus Christ himself a man that traveled and lived with Jesus Christ himself was a very close friend to Jesus Christ a man that heard the very words that Jesus Christ spoke and yet here is Diotrephes And John writes that he will have nothing to do with us. Something wrong there. Here's a person whose ministry was formed under the very one that all of our beliefs point to. If you can't have some kind of a a place underneath somebody that has first-hand knowledge then who are you going to be under? And I'm not talking so much about in today's religious society. I'm talking about specifically in this situation with John and Diotrephes. Because it's important to see that there was a there should have been a chain of command. There had to be a leadership command. And not that it makes one person more important, but the person that heard it straight from Jesus' mouth I think has a little bit better idea of what really is going on. He'd have a little bit more authority than someone who didn't. Why? Because he was one of the 12. He was personally, this is another thing, he was personally sent out by Jesus Christ himself. He established these churches. And now here's someone that says, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. You know, I, I got your letter, and um, yeah, I hear you, but, you know, I really just want this to be about me. He loves to be first. This type of dictatorial leadership practiced by this man reflects the, much of the mindset of the world today. It denies leadership, or it defines leadership as the ability to direct thoughts, plans and actions of others. In reality, it's manipulation and intimidation. 
It's not leadership. Just because you can beat somebody into submission doesn't make you a leader. I remember years ago, we used to, there was this thing in the, the business I was in, a little saying that the beatings will continue until the morale improves. <laughs> I just always loved that. Had nothing to do with this. But in this kind of mindset, people are supposed to be good leaders if they can command obedience, if they can command confidence, if they can command respect and loyalty of their subordinates. That's not leadership. And the emphasis is on doing exactly what the leader demands. That's what, that's basically what John was saying this man was doing. He loves to be first. He doesn't want to have, be under anybody's authority. He wants to be the one that's in charge. Mark wrote something, and it was the words of Jesus also because he was one of the twelve. In Mark 10 and 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now, Jesus didn't leave it at that. Look at verses 43 through 45. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Not For even the Son of Man did not come did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark heard it from Jesus himself. John had heard it from Jesus himself. You want to be a leader? Be a servant. Jesus' model of leadership is much different from that of Diotrephes. In the eyes of God, if people want to be great, they must unsparingly serve others. I called Jeffrey yesterday as I was finishing up my notes. And I said, um, he goes to Southeastern University in Lakeland. Incredible school. And I said, isn't one of the, one of the themes at Southeastern uh, servant leadership? No. What do you mean? He said, that is the theme of Southeastern leadership of Southeastern University. That is the only thing of Southeastern University. Servant leadership. And when I first heard that term, I really didn't, I didn't understand it. But when you see the way that they do things and what they teach there, it's exactly what John was writing in here and what the, 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 some of the other writers of the Gospels were saying that Jesus taught. If you want to be first, first be a servant. You want to be the one that's in charge? then be under the authority of somebody to start with. There's a lot of people that they say, well, I want to, I want to get into the ministry. What do you want to do? I want to be the pastor. <laughs> Have you ever taught a Sunday school class? Nope. Um, do you have any training? Nope. But I'd like to be the pastor. It's like the little boy that after church one morning, he told his mom, I've decided I want to go into the ministry. And she said, well, that's great. Why is that? He said, well, I figured that if i got to be there anyway, I'd rather be the one standing up front yelling than the one who has to just sit there. <laughs> That's not the reason to get in the ministry.
Many of the New Testament writers wrote of this same attitude. Why? Because that's what Jesus lived. They wrote what they saw. It wasn't just Jesus' words. It's what they saw. Matthew wrote in Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12. This is Jesus also. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. John wrote the words of Jesus in his epistle also. This is the same John that wrote these letters. Here's the setting. Jesus has gathered all the disciples together, and they've just gotten through with a a meal. And Jesus walks around, and he starts to wash the disciples' feet. Now, washing feet was a... A thing, people, you know, they had dusty roads and they wore sandals and their feet when you came in were dirty. So they had a servant at the door that when you took your shoes off, this was like the lowest servant on the chain of command had to be the one to wash people's feet. It was the bottom job. And here is Jesus himself going around and washing the disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter. you got to love Peter. Riddled with ADD. And Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. Well, in that case, then he said, wash my hands and my head also. And this is the context of what Jesus says. He finishes washing this feet, their feet. And in John 13, 12 through 15, this is what he says. For whoever, when he had finished washing their feet... He put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. Why? Jesus is making a point that you can't just walk in and say, I'm in charge. There has to be some humility. And for Jesus, who was the Son of God, to go around and wash the disciples' feet was humility. And Jesus told them, you need to do the same thing. Not so much that you need to go around and wash people's feet, but you need to have that same attitude of humility. You don't say, well, that's below me. And sadly, in a lot of churches, there are people that really believe that there are certain things that are below them. Servant leadership. That's what Jesus taught. It's what Jesus lived. Paul understood the concept really well. In Colossians 4 and 3, look what Paul wrote. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Here is a man that is in prison in chains. And he says, pray that there will be some way that we can still get the message of Christ out. Help me to get out the message the very message for which I am in chains for. Pray that there will be a way. Paul didn't have an agenda of his own. He had one agenda and one message, the gospel of Christ. 
even as he's sitting in chains, he said, help pray for us that we can find a way to spread this gospel. A Christ-like leader humbly sets aside their own desires and selfish agenda and ministers to the needs of others. A Christ-like leader will shepherd the flock willingly, not because of being forced to do it, and not for what's in it for them. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Did I say that? Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Okay, go on. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Those two scriptures just wiped out about 90% of all television ministries right there. I'm sorry. Let's go back and look at it again. Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Christian ministry is not supposed to be about what's in it for me. Christian ministry should be about what can I do to further the message of Christ. There are people in the ministry, and I use that term loosely to say this, there are people in the ministry that they're calling to another church, a lot of times is based on what the other church pays. That's not the way it used to be. The calling used to be that it was something in your heart that you felt like, I have to go do this because that's where God wants me to be. It doesn't matter if they don't pay me anything. How do you know that? Because I remember... When I was about 12 or 13 years old, living up in the panhandle, my father had a a very good job. Five days a week, we fished in the afternoons. We went fishing on Saturdays. Had two boats, one for the rivers and one for out in the Gulf. Had a pretty good life. After 17 years with this company, he walked away from it and moved to Brandon. For a big paycheck? No. No. To start this church from nothing. Picked up his family, came here. What are we going to do? We're going to start a church. Where? Not really sure. So we lived with Brother and Sister Lewis for about two weeks until we found a house to rent. And my dad got a job working long hours, something he had never done before. And we started having services down here at Bloomingdale Civic Center. And from that, that group of people was able to buy this piece of property. And from that, a group of men in this church were able to pretty much build this building that we are in here today. And my dad worked all this time, worked 
probably 60 hours a week. We'd get off in the afternoons or at night at 9 o'clock, come out to the church, work till midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, literally building the building, get up the next morning, go to work. And that's why there's a church here. It wasn't about moving to Brandon for a paycheck. It was coming to Brandon for a calling. And that's what Peter was writing about here, is that Christian leadership is supposed to be about we're going out and doing the work of God. Not for what we get, because that's what we're called to do. A lot of people have lost sight of that in ministries today. I think when your ministry gets to a point to where you feel like that you have to go out and spend $10 million on a 20-year-old Gulfstream 3 jet, it's a good chance you've lost your way. Well, I didn't spend $40 million on a new Gulfstream 5. I only spent $10 million on a 20-year-old Gulfstream 3. Oh, that's too bad. You go, well, what does that have to do with anything? Because people will answer that and say, yeah, but look what I'm doing. And I would say to that, how much more could you do if you weren't taking so much for yourself? Remember what John was writing here. He was writing about supporting those that taught the truth. And he said not to support those that don't. And folks, there's a lot of people out there, I know you don't want to hear this maybe, but that are in it for the money. And for us to support the ones that are in it for the money, I think is just wrong. Because there's too many good people out there, there's too many good ministries out there, there's too many missionaries that are doing the work of God. Let me put it this way. Instead of a $10 million jet, so you don't have to fly commercial like the rest of us, I will guarantee you there are missionaries that wish they had a bicycle to get from church to church. There are missionaries that wish they had a pair of shoes that would keep their feet warm in the wintertime. They don't want a jet. They don't want a turboprop. They don't even want a little piper. They'd be happy with a pair of shoes. There are missionaries today, and I know this for a fact because one just stood in this pulpit just a few months ago, that would just wish that they had the means so that when it rained, their church didn't fill up with mud and they'd have to go shovel it out before service. I believe that we today, it's just as important as it was in John's day, that we support the ministries of those that are teaching the truth. John commended over and over those that were supporting those teaching the truth. You're doing such a tremendous job. Support those people and and send them out as messengers of God. Not those that are trying to build a name for themselves or a dynasty of, of power and money. Christian service requires teamwork, and for there to be a successful team, there has to be leadership. Not just leadership, but it also requires that the team works together. And that's where it comes to you and I. Our pastor is our shepherd. He is our leader. But each of us has a ministry to to do, 
And all of our ministries have to work together with each other and work with our pastor for there to be a successful church at High Point Church of Brandon. And the problem that John saw with this one particular man is that he didn't want to be a part. He wanted to be this spiritual maverick running around doing what he wanted to do so that it was about him. He wants to be first. Remember, that's what he said. His problem is he wants to be first. He didn't want to have to answer to anyone. And each one of us has a ministry that we are called to. Yours is not mine and mine is not yours. It wouldn't be my ministry if it was yours. It takes all of these parts working together to be successful. Let me give you an example. A baseball team. Not just any baseball team. The New York Yankees. I don't know what their team payroll is, but I do know this. They have one player named Alex Rodriguez, or A-Rod, as he's mostly referred to, that this past year signed a 10-year, $270 million contract. That's roughly $27 million a year to play baseball. He is an incredible baseball player. Whether or not he's worth $27 million a year, I'm not going to get into, but keep in mind, that's just him. That's not the rest of the team. That's just him making $27 million a year to play baseball. The Tampa Bay Devil Rays, or the Tampa Bay Rays now, their entire team budget, payroll, for 27 players is $43 million. That comes out to $1.6 million per player per year. Stay with me for just a minute. I'm going somewhere, I promise. Based on the dollars, that means that A-Rod should be able to play against any 16 players on the Rays and win. And there's only nine people on a baseball team. So that means the Rays could put up any nine men, and based on the dollars, A-Rod could go out there and play against him by himself and be competitive based on the money. Here's the point. Can that one man, regardless of how valuable he is, regardless of how good he is, can that one man get out there and play against a team that's getting paid the same as him? Is there any chance that he can beat them? No. You know how I know that? The entire team can't beat them. It's the truth. The entire Yankees organization can't beat the lowly devil race. race. So it's not very likely that A-Rod would get out and beat him for, by himself. In fact, the Yankees really aren't beating much of anybody. They're in last place. They have the best individual players in all of baseball on that team. If you break down each individual position, by far they have the best individual players in all of baseball. The problem is that most of their players are out there playing individually. They don't play as a team. You go back a few years ago and you saw the Los Angeles Lakers when they had Shaq and Kobe Bryant and everybody that was the best in basketball. And they were horrible because everybody wanted the ball for themselves. Kobe wanted the ball all the time. Shaq wanted the ball. And nobody played as a team and they lost game after game after game, even though they had the best players in the whole NBA. What's your point? Churches are the same way. 
We can have the greatest individual ministries anywhere. But if those ministries don't work together, you can't be successful. It doesn't matter how tremendous the pastor is. He could be the A-Rod of pastors, the Alex Rodriguez of preachers. But you can't be successful by yourself. It takes the efforts of the entire church body. Our calling as a group is to spread the gospel. But we all have individual callings that when they are working together will accomplish just that. And it takes all of those ministries working together. We are called to support ministries that are teaching the Word of God. We are called to support each other in our individual callings. We are called to one purpose, and that is to spread the gospel. It's not about making a name for High Point Church. It's not. It's not about making a name for any one individual. It's about spreading the name of Christ. That's the only name that really matters. It's not building a mega church that matters. It's about building mega Christians. People that when the devil throws the worst he has at them, that they can stand. Not shallow people that the first thing that comes along and they're blown away with some other, as one writer wrote, wind of doctrine. That's right. That's right. The tagline on, on everything you see at High Point Church is helping you, helping you reach the high point in your walk with Christ. And you know what? That really is what it's all about. If in the meantime, and I had this conversation with a young man this past week, there is nothing wrong with a megachurch. There's nothing wrong with that. Not at all. Unless that's your goal. If you are teaching the Word of God and you become a megachurch, fantastic. But if your, your only goal is to set out to become a megachurch, then something's wrong. But this is what it's about. No, we're, we're not the only ones that have the truth. Please don't take me as... I'm not being that shallow. There are churches everywhere that have the truth. But there are a lot of them that don't. What is your purpose? What is it really all about? It's really all about growing together and growing with God. Growing closer to God. Does it mean that I'm content with the attendance at High Point Church? No. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, boy, I wish we only had four or five so it could be even more intimate. No. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that I'm grateful for what God is doing in lives of people here at High Point Church. I am very grateful for that. I believe that Bishop Goldsberry's calling to come to Brandon, Florida was from God. I believe that his vision of seeing this place so full that we have to build a third phase of a building project to hold the people, we will see it. I believe that Pastor Magine is the man that God has called to lead Hyde Point Church of Brandon. But the vision of one man and the efforts of another will not build a church. 
tremendous individual ministries in a church will not build a church. Remember the Yankees. It's when the vision, the leadership, the individual ministries, and all of the support of the church comes together that we build a church. It's when we're working together as one body that we can truly reach out to the community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, together we can conquer any foe. Together we can triumph over any obstacle. Together with the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, not even the gates of hell can overcome us. God bless you.